Hi, I'm Grant Wall, and welcome to the Planet Football Podcast. We're back on the two-episode-a-week schedule. Today, SI's Brian Strauss joins me to talk about this week's MLS Cup Final, the greatest teams in MLS history by year and era, and what ingredients make for a good Cup Final. I'll tell some of my favorite Clint Dempsey and Drew Carey stories, and we get into the World Cup draw and the intricacies of Brian's Twitter bio. Before we get started, if you enjoy the podcast, you can do us a huge favor by subscribing, liking, and giving us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get this podcast. That gives us a boost on the charts, and we need to get our numbers up. Joining me now is Sports Illustrated's Brian Strauss. Brian, how are you? How was your weekend? Hey, man. It, w- it was all right. A little more exciting than the usual uh, napping on the couch. I, um, I went to a three-year-old's birthday party. Nice. Um, ate all the food. Uh, <laughs> was the most poorly behaved person there. Um, cops had to be called a couple times. You know, standard. I'm imagining uh, you giving the Heisman to some three-year-old at the food table. Yeah, remember, remember, it's like George Costanza, like pushing the kids out of the way when he thinks there's a fire. Like, I, I want the cake, you know, give me. <laughs> My birthday uh, this weekend was kind of fun, actually. Um, I turned 44, and I was having birthday dinner with my wife out in Charleston, West Virginia, of all places. She's working as a doctor out there for a couple of weeks. And my phone starts blowing up toward the end of dinner. Only you ruin your own birthday dinner, man. Pretty much. Uh, Actually, though, I should say toward the end of dinner. I would not have picked up if this was at the beginning of dinner, but... Uh, it turned out that all these people were texting me because there was breaking news in the U.S. soccer presidential campaign, which uh, it turned out, and I made a ton of calls that night after getting these texts, Sunil Gulati, the incumbent who's been U.S. soccer president for 12 years, I was told was strongly considering not running for re-election and considering supporting instead Kathy Carter, the president of Soccer United Marketing, uh, and very much new, na- his- new name in the race. Yeah, exactly. Someone who has not been uh, a declared candidate. And also, she would be the first woman to enter a race that currently has seven dudes. Yeah, I know that's something you've talked about. And um, obviously, with a lot of the issues uh, that the women's national team had with the federation over the past few years, there were there were people, including yourself, who wanted to see a woman run um, to bring that that fresh perspective. Um And it would be ironic, I suppose, if uh, we did have a woman run, um, which is something I think a lot of people have wanted to see. And she represented the establishment more strongly than any other candidate (laughs) in the race, um, which is what Kathy Carter would be. Yeah, I think Kathy Carter is a talented person. Uh, She's been involved uh, on the U.S. soccer scene for many years. Uh, But she certainly will be seen as total establishment. Uh, Soccer United Marketing is the company that's the marketing arm of MLS. It's profitable as opposed to MLS. It's owned by the MLS owners, and it has a very tight business relationship uh, with the U.S. Soccer Federation. And so people who think that it's too clubby inside uh, the U.S. Soccer Federation leadership will probably be annoyed uh, by this possibility. That said, Kathy Carter has a pretty long track record of being successful in the business of American soccer. Well, and and that's fine. And my personal opinion is that the issue over the past few years at U.S. soccer is that we've combined uh, the business and marketing and revenue generating 
parts of the sport, which exist and which are important, with the technical parts of the sport, which are also very important. And we vested all of that power into one place and perhaps even one person. Um, and I think that is a huge reason that uh, that we're facing what we are now, which is a summer without a World Cup. So if, if Kathy Carter or someone else wants to bring their business acumen to the table um, and help uh, grow the sport and grow revenue um, and all those kinds of things, maybe she will also not like unilaterally pick the next national team coach. Yeah, I do think it's really important. Like you said, in my opinion, the balance between the business side and the soccer side in recent years in U.S. soccer has gone far too much toward the business side and away from the soccer side. If you're Kathy Carter or Carlos Cordero, I think it's really important for you to show that you have a plan on how to handle the soccer stuff and get the right people making good soccer decisions, which include, obviously, hiring coaches. Um, I ended up putting out a story on Saturday night because I had a bunch of calls between 10 10 p.m. and 11 p.m. Eastern with people who I go to when I get a tip and then was able to put out on Twitter Saturday night, Sunil Gulati strongly considering not running, considering supporting Kathy Carter instead. Um, So you never know when news is going to break, Brian. It's happened a lot. I feel like there have been a lot of instances lately where, you know, I've been sitting around picking my nose all day and then all of a sudden at seven o'clock at night, you know, (laughs) the the world starts coming to an end. This has happened. Maybe that's just because that's when people get off work. And so then they feel like they can like get in the car and talk to people like us. I don't know what it is, but there have been too many late nights, uh, too many, uh, you know, taking calls while I heat up my lean cuisine. Um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so that's just been the way that's been the way uh, we've all been rolling lately. Um, I, I will say this though that my wife, who is very understanding, I didn't take this these calls early in the in the birthday dinner. It was toward the end, and I said to people, "Can I call you in an hour once I get back to the hotel from this birthday dinner?" And then my wife went to bed, and I worked the phones for about an hour and a half. Where you Where do you go in Charleston? Where was the Where was the happening Grant birthday spot? The Chop House in Charleston, West Virginia, uh, highly recommended. If you go there on your birthday, they give you half price. No kidding. Yeah. How many do places they, actually do, do that? They, do they come out like and sing happy birthday? All the, 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 the wait staff come out and sing happy birthday for you? And Thankfully, no. Oh, I, I, no? Okay. I will say this, though, that I plan to do this during World Cup 2018. During uh, the Women's World Cup in 2015 in Canada, whenever we went out with Alexi Lalas for dinner, which was just about every night, we told the staff that it was his birthday and they would send people out to sing happy birthday to him with a free piece of cake at the end. It became kind of a, a tradition. And maybe in Russia, it's extra, extra vodka shots. Uh, I, I'll tell you something about this, by the way. You I don't could, even. I don't. Roll, you could just roll Alexi to the set in a wheelbarrow every morning. I I don't want to drink a drop of alcohol in Russia just because, like, I am scared about basically anything that could happen if I had even one drink over there. We'll see how long you can keep that keep that pledge. <laughs> um, moving on, I want to ask you about something, Brian. Uh, you have a new Twitter bio, or a relatively new Twitter bio, and. I want you to explain a little bit here because a lot of people follow you on Twitter at Brian Strauss. It used to be. Is this a this is not a ploy to we want listeners to know this is entirely your idea to ask me about this. Yes. This is not a ploy to get more people to follow me on Twitter. Very good Twitter follow. I'll say that right now. Your your bio used to say Sports Illustrated's other soccer writer, which I thought was pretty amusing. 
uh, in a very Brian way. Now, it not only says Sports Illustrated's other soccer writer, it says wifeless, childless, awardless Sports Illustrated's other soccer writer. What's going on, man? It's not fake news. I, I just realized that Twitter bios and social media in general uh, is all about bragging about what you got and showing <laughs> off what you have, you know, and uh, in a cliched sort of, you know, derivative sort of way. You know, and as long as you say you're humbled to have won this award or here's my beautiful family, hashtag blessed, that somehow it's it's not bragging, even though it totally is. Um, so I decided to, to, to flaunt what I got. <laughs> Wifeless, childless, awardless. Yeah, man. Are you going to add the hashtag blessed to your Twitter bio at some point? <laughs> I should totally do that. I'm going to do that. Uh, we should probably talk a little soccer as well. There is uh, a final this week. There's actually a couple of finals this week, one in Mexico, one in MLS. But let's talk about the MLS final. Uh, we've got Toronto hosting Seattle for the second straight year in frigid Toronto. We have the possibility of Toronto making its case to be the best MLS team of all time. Where do you stand on all this? Can they be the best MLS team of all time? Uh, you know, it's it's hard to, what do they call it, like golden ageism or whatever. I mean, just, just this idea that things that you remember from way back when that you you imbue with this sort of, you know, uh, romantic kind of quality, right? right? I mean, the players from your childhood or, or from a certain era are always the teams, all these, the music, all these things are always going to have connections, emotional connections to you, memories uh, that are just kind of hard to, to, to scrub away with the next new big thing. And, and so, you know, I feel that way about the old DC United teams, both because I'm from DC um, and and was a fan before I was a reporter. I, I interned with DC United in, in 1996, um, as we've talked about on the show before. And so when I think about what those teams accomplished, and I look at who was on those teams, and I'm not suggesting for a second that you know Roel Diaz Arce is the is the equivalent of Sebastian Javinko. I mean, I, I I I get I get the 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 real world comparisons don't always necessarily work, but that team was, was top to bottom internationals, won multiple MLS championships, won CONCACAF, beat Bosco in the Inter-American Cup, um, was dominant for, for a solid four years. And it's hard for me just to look past that. And I can be accused of bias and I can be accused of, of sort of, you know, wallowing in these, in these, you know, memories uh, of, of, of glorious days gone by and all that kind of stuff. Um, but, you know, is this the best season uh, that an MLS team has put together? You can certainly make that case, absolutely. Um, but is this the best team in MLS history? I think they need to do this a couple times. You know, I think they need to go on a really historic dynastic run uh, to make a case that they're better than that that early 90s, that late 90s team in D.C. And then, of course, you have the L.A. team of, of Donovan, Beckham, and Keene, which has to be in the conversation as well, but I don't have the same connection to that that group. So, so this is interesting to me. You don't when you're comparing greatest teams in MLS history, you would prefer not to do it by a specific year, like say the 1997 DC United oh. team. You would prefer to to look at eras. Yeah, when you said a team, yeah, I mean, if you had said season, then I would have had a completely different thought enter my head. I'll be honest. When you say team, I think of a, a group of players and a coach and a, uh, you know, a, a single group that moves through a couple of seasons as a core. I guess that's what I I was thinking. 
yeah, I mean, if, if Toronto wins on, on Saturday, this very well will be, I mean, it's hard to say that this isn't the best season in MLS history. Completely dominant from start to finish. The first team to win a treble, uh, the Shield, the Cup, and their and their domestic cup. And I know people poo-poo the Canadian Championship, but it's only one fewer game. You, right. you, you play four games instead of five, so I'm, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna rip the rug out from under them because of 90 minutes. And they would have won, so because because they win everything. So I, I yeah, best season um, in MLS history, but not yet ready uh, to crown them. Um, the best team and and you can send your hate mail to the aforementioned Twitter account. (laughs) I mean, here's what I would say is I like the way you've sort of separated the two. If you're going to talk about one season, I do think if Toronto wins, they are going to be for me. This is the best single season in MLS history. When you look at the 69 points in the regular season, when you look at the goal difference, when you look at the goals scored. Yeah. I mean, that, that works for me now. I also really like the idea of looking at eras multiple seasons in a row because that's a good way to put into perspective what DC United did from 1996 to 1999, where they won three out of the first four MLS Cup titles. And the one year they didn't in 98, they might have had the best team in league history that season. Right. Um, And so I like that because if you put it in terms of an era – it makes it a little easier to take that DC United team from 96 to 99 and bring in that LA Galaxy team with Donovan, Beckham, and Keane and say, look, Toronto's not quite there yet because they haven't done it for enough years. And there's something significant to that too. What's so impressive to me about Toronto, and, and, and you, can make, you can make this case for the Sounders as well. I mean, the Sounders are the champions until they're not. And, 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 and I, would, I would put the Sounders... Uh, it, I, w- I would I would say that this applies to both of them is that they both went out and got better. Um, you know, they continued to push the envelope, and obviously the, the most the the acquisition of of Victor Vasquez for for Toronto um, has made them demonstrably more dynamic than they were uh, than they were last year. I mean, just think about the difference that uh, Vasquez can make uh, make Saturday in in the cup. Um, you know, how, how difficult it was for Sebastian Javinko to find the game and, and MLS Cup last year. And I thought that was a decisive thing about the match, even though it wound up going to penalties. I, I think that's a big reason it did go to penalties. Um, and, and so then they go out and they say, you know, we're not content. Um, we're going to go bring in a player who, who not only solve, fills a hole and helps improve on a weakness, but we bring in another big name, another big talent into a group that already has big names and big talents. And you force those big names and big talents to to adjust um, and 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 uh, what's defer a little bit. And, and, and they not only do that, but they do that to great effect. Um, so that to me is an is an excellent sign that as good as they are, as stocked as they are, they can still be a whole greater than the sum of their parts. And that certainly they are in position, I think. Uh, to be the best team in MLS history with uh, with another trophy or two. Now, cup finals are often bad in terms of quality. Uh, we see that all over the world. We've seen that in MLS. These two teams last year played what I would call a bad cup final. Now, for those fans of those teams, especially Seattle, they don't care. Even though they had zero shots on goal, they won on penalties and they were the champions. But I guess one question I have for you, for us neutrals, is... What ingredients are there that can make for a good cup final or even a great cup final that spring to mind? I mean, 
from from the team's perspective or from the the fans and and, and watchers' perspective? Well, I mean, like for me, like an early goal would be key. Um, okay, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. and there's certainly other things too. I mean, I also think having Clint Dempsey being involved in this final and he was not involved in last year's final might cause Seattle to play with a little bit more of an attacking style than they did in that game a year ago. Yeah, I mean, and, and this is no disrespect to, to, to Jordan Morris, um, but but Dempsey plus Will Bruin, um, I think is, especially, I mean, especially when you saw against Houston the way Bruin was able to combine uh, with his teammates and, 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 and set up a goal with that really nice little, little, little one-touch through pass, that's more dynamic and dangerous than Morris kind of on his own. Um, and, and Morris may even get some time uh, on Saturday. So, I mean, yeah, I think a lot of it is, is yeah, an early goal helps. A lot of that is good fortune or misfortune, an early bounce. You know, the weather makes it tough. It's, it, 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 it's cold. It, the, the field is hard. Um, you know, you, you're, you're not playing in conditions that lend itself to sort of, you know, wide open, fluid football. So, uh, yeah, you know, look, you want you want chances and, and you want moments um, and, and you want uh, you want to feel like something big is just around the corner. And I think if you have that, whether the score is one nothing or, or, or six to five, it's a good final. Uh, you want to be on the edge of your seat. Obviously, if you're covering the game, if you're if, if you're if you're if you're one of the very, very I mean, we're, we're such a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of the population watching the game um but anyway this is our podcast so um <laughs> like obviously if you're covering the game you want four nothing at halftime right i mean there's just no question i mean i mean covering covering a game covering a <laughs> where, where you want to you you want to you want to say something other than seattle won, right you want to have a reason you want to have a narrative you want to have something that that puts into context this this game and this achievement and and when and when you know what that context is only five minutes before you have to send your entire story, that's like getting just punched in the stomach repeatedly. And so I, I love games that are over in the 40th minute. So <laughs> your, your perspective as a, as a reporter are, are completely different than your perspective as a fan. Um, and the game doesn't necessarily have to be well played. And I think back to the first. MLS Cup final, of course, you know, DC United versus LA in an absolute monsoon in Foxborough. I mean, the, the, the players were sinking in ankle deep into mud uh, in the field. I mean, the ball would just get stuck in puddles. I mean, it was a it was grotesque. And yet, because of the idea that anything could happen at any moment, because of the drama, because of the comeback, it's remembered as this this epic, epic uh, uh, final. And people people love that kind of stuff. So um, I just I just think knowing anything could happen, having a feeling like like it's all there for the two teams, that things aren't on lockdown, that things are moving, that there's possibility. Uh, that's all I care about. I like it when somebody you might least expect, like a Pando Ramirez in 2005, makes the <laughs> title winning play, you know, because I even that season, Pando Ramirez, I kept a week by week Pando Ramirez goal scoring watch where he had some ridiculous amount of shots on goal that year without scoring a goal, and then he scores the goal that wins the MLS Cup title for the LA Galaxy. It was perfect. If we had Twitter back then, you could have had a, like a has Pando scored yet? <laughs> you know, and it's like no, no, no. But um, I mean, looking at this game, I I like I like a lot of the possibilities here, uh, and you know, realizing we could get a dud just like last year, that's possible. But I hope that the conditions, uh, in terms of the cold. 
and the weather don't prevent soccer from being played. I look at the talent on set pieces, the free kick ability, not just of Sebastian Jovinko, but of Clint Dempsey as something that could play a big role in this game. I also look at just the the different possibilities in terms of which players are going to be at full strength. Is Josie Altidore's injury going to allow him to play? Is Osvaldo Alonso going to be able to play? And should he play since he hasn't played in quite a while for Seattle? Good, good shout on Ozzy. Yeah, yeah. That and, and this idea that, uh, you know, I think we talked last week, you know, are we ready for the for the Seattle Toronto era and, and, and whether or not it's an era I'm, I'm, and again, and, and look, I mean, no, uh, you know, the Columbus's Columbus's run was enthralling. Um, you know, Houston, Houston was a, was a pleasant surprise and, and, and did very well to be Portland, but I'm, I'm cool with this rematch. And, and I think part of that is I like the idea that, that Toronto I mean, Toronto is just, they've been seeing Seattle in their sleep for a year, you know, and, right. and, 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 and playing this game over again in their head for a year. And now they get to actually do it. Um, and that's a really neat thing to, to, to spend a year as an athlete visualizing something and then, and then have the opportunity to step on the field and make it real. And then for Seattle, you know, again, they, they play by the rules, right? I mean, they, the, 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 everyone knows how to win a, a championship in this league, and they did it. And, and you could certainly make a case that overall they were the best team in the league over the, you know, after adding Ladero uh, last year. But again, they went out and got better. Marcus Svensson, players like that, um, to endured injuries to Ozzy and Jordan Morris. Dempsey's come back, and it's a great story. And so they get the chance to, to, to prove that last year wasn't a fluke. They get the chance to be repeat champions. They get the chance to, in a sense, play that game again and, and, and win it in a, in a, in a more, more satisfying – that's a weird way to say it. It's hard to you know, win a championship in a more satisfying way. But everyone knows what I mean, um, you know, to get the chance and go out and, and play the game on their terms and win on their terms um, and, and show what this club is about. I, I find it really delicious that the that these two teams have these opportunities and, and I think it's a it's a cool second half, you know, maybe almost look at it like an aggregate series. You know, this is a cool second leg, a second chapter uh, to what we saw last year. I think also, too, you mentioned the great story of Clint Dempsey coming back from his heart condition. He thought his career was done a year ago. It was not. He's had a good season. He's had a good playoffs. He's going to play going to play in his first MLS final uh, in over a decade. And can I tell you one of my favorite Clint Dempsey stories? Yeah. Okay. So my first time I ever interviewed Clint Dempsey was in the year 2004. Uh, he was a rookie with the New England Revolution. The I think he was the eighth pick in the draft, the Freddie Adu draft. And he was getting off to a good start to the season. And I was living in Boston at the time and got the assignment from the magazine to go interview Clint Dempsey. And I remember saying to uh, the revolution PR head, uh, you know, we can go wherever Clint wants to go, you know, SI is going to pay for it. So if he wants to go someplace nice, that would be great to have lunch. And it came back to me that Clint wanted to meet up at the Dunkin' Donuts in Foxborough, Mass., which I'm sure the Sports Illustrated bean counters were very happy about this because it was a pretty inexpensive place. Uh, we had a nice interview, but I, I remember saying to Clint many years later when he was playing in the Premier League, I went back, I think it was 2010, to London, and I was joking with him about the time that I, I basically gave him a blank check to go anywhere for lunch, and he picked Dunkin' Donuts. And so he picked this really nice 
Italian restaurant in London. And he said, I remember, you know, saying Dunkin' Donuts before, so I wanted you to go someplace nice this time. So I thought that was kind of fun. It showed a little bit of like rookie Clint versus <laughs> what he became. Did he, I'm like, did he eat? Did he eat donuts for lunch? <laughs> <laughs> the, the crawler. <laughs> I'm now I'm now thinking of the the the, the Casey Affleck uh, SNL ad. I'm at so I'm mad. <laughs> yeah. And ordering the vanilla nut taps and then throwing his coffee at a car. You know. <laughs> but Clint Dempsey is a guy. I feel like. Uh, I've covered for so, so long that I I have a hard time imagining him not being on the U.S. soccer landscape, but I fully expect that whenever he stops playing, I don't think Clint's going to go into media. I don't think he's going to be a coach. I think he's just going to go fishing and sort of disappear. Yeah, I'm absolutely 100% with you. No question. You know, Uh, one thing I like about Clint is is that I, I when I when I played, I always felt and obviously I didn't I feel like I need to issue this disclaimer that I'm well aware that I am not 1% of the, of the player Clint Dempsey was, but you know, at, at whatever level you play at, you, you know, if you're a forward, you, you count your goals, you keep track. And I, and I always felt there was like social pressure, team pressure to do that, um, to, to sort of keep your own stats in your own head. And because that's not, you know, that's making it about you and not the team. Um, you know, it was the, when I coach and I would, and I would hear about a, uh, a, a parent rewarding their kid for a goal and you kind of try to step in and say, you know what, you know, don't promise the kid a, a, a bump in allowance or a, a, an extra Capri Sun if he scores because maybe maybe I want him to pass the ball there, that sort of thing. But I did count and I did keep track and I always knew exactly what I what my number was and, and how many goals I'd scored against a certain team or whatever. And I just love the fact that Clint Dempsey opened up this world to me that it was entirely not only entirely OK to do that, but there were like extra levels to it. I mean, you could sit down with Clint, you know, and, and he would know how many goals he scored for Fulham on Tuesday nights <laughs> against teams wearing blue. The guy knew the guy had, had I've had so many interactions with him where he would rattle off stats, accomplishments that, you know, I, my, my goal scoring percentage for the national team was this good. And, and, you know, and he does it in a way to sort of question people's evaluation of his career. Um, he, he does it when, you know, people have suggested in the past that he wasn't at this level or that level. And, and Clint would bring out, you know, here's what I've won. Here are my awards. Here are my goal scoring statistics. And, and, and it was completely okay with him to sort of, uh, trumpet that stuff. Um, and I always appreciated that. I was always sort of glad that, okay, you know, I wasn't, uh, you know, I wasn't entirely off base there. The bet, the best strikers in the world do it too. And, uh, I've always enjoyed that about Clint, his unapologetic reading of the back of his own baseball card. I think. <laughs> you know, one of my other favorite Clint stories is told by Drew Carey of all people, the comedian who's now a part owner of the Sounders for a while back in, I guess it was right around 06, 07, Drew Carey would actually be a photographer on the sideline right. at U.S. Yeah, national team games. Yeah. And his, his fake name was Brooks Parkinridge. So if you actually Google the name Brooks Parkinridge, U.S. Soccer, I think, even posted some photos that he had taken, Drew Carey, but under the name Brooks Parkinridge. So Drew was at a game. It was a USA-Poland game in Europe uh, in the 2000s, and Clint, Dempsey was pretty new to the national team. And Drew remembers before this game against Poland, seeing Clint somehow walk across the field in warm-ups or something or before warm-ups and 
this Polish guy kind of walked into his path and Clint elbowed the crap out of him and said, get out of my way. And for Drew Carey, this was like this cool moment where he realized that this young punk, Clint Dempsey, was going to be great for the U.S. because he didn't take any crap from opposing teams. And it was actually kind of a jerk to him. That's awesome. I wonder if there are any good uh, Brooks Parkinridge photos of Jay Goppingen. <laughs> Jay Goppingen being the <laughs> alias of Jurgen Klinsmann when he played for the Orange County Zodiac back in the early 2000s. Good stuff. Good memory. So moving on, Brian, you're going to be in Toronto for the final uh, covering that for SI.com. I hope you stay So I'm warm. so excited. I get to wear pants. Do you not wear pants at home usually? Uh, you know, you're at home. You know, you, you, you wear whatever's around. <laughs> but you're going to be all – Saran wrap, whatever. You're you know? going to be all over it this week. I think you're going up on Thursday. Game That's is right. Saturday. I'm very um, excited. But there's another story I wanted to ask you about. That's the World Cup draw, which took place on Friday. What stood out to you about this World Cup draw and what we have? Um, pictures of dignitaries and coaches is like dozing off in the audience <laughs> during the bad Russian heavy metal segment of this. Have you ever been? To, I've never been as as excited. I don't mean to seem like I really legitimately am excited to go to MLS Cup. I, I did not go last year and I'm thrilled uh, to be able to go. I haven't been to Toronto in four years, actually. I went up to interview Michael Bradley uh, before the last World Cup, and that's the last time I, I was there. Um, and, and, and it's been kind of a slow year, so I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled to be able to go. Um, so I don't mean to be, you know, joking about it. But um, I have never been to a draw. Uh, I've never covered a draw. And and that just seems like the worst thing to have to cover, like the worst thing, because because there, there's nothing that happens there that you can't see on TV. And I guess you might be able to get a couple interviews afterward. But sitting through that is mind numbing. I mean, it's 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 like it's, it's like sitting through three hours of trigonometry and I'm 15 years old again or whatever. It just looks awful. There are some slow moments it draws. I went to the World Cup draw in Brazil in late 2013. That one was on a at a beach resort. So that was kind of nice. I did like the sort of moments behind the scenes where you had all 32 World Cup coaches who were in the same place and like, oh, there's Yogi Love with a towel around his neck going to the gym. You know, there's Jurgen Klinsmann talking to Yogi Love and, and that sort of thing. Uh, Sepp Blatter was there in, in 2013. I was right next to him as he did this little dance with uh, members of an African federation. He's, I bet that wasn't awkward. Uh, <laughs> he seemed to enjoy it. I, I love Seth Blatter in, in a way because I remember he told this to Rebecca Ruiz from the New York Times and Sam Borden when they interviewed him a year ago. And he says, every morning when I wake up, life is a fiesta. <laughs> and whether he thinks that is the case or not, just the fact that he says that to himself or that's the story he tells about himself, I always thought was kind of great. But yeah, I mean, like, it is pretty mind-numbing at a lot of these draw things. Uh, I didn't go to the Russia draw this time around. But if you're into, like, doing interviews with a lot of national team coaches, yeah, that is, is certainly right, that, a possibility. Right, that part, that part is, is the reason you go, no question about it. But like you said, like, my first image of the draw, like I said, was simply, simply the, you know, please let this be over soon, you know, guys looking for their, their cyanide capsules um, in the audience. Uh, as the thing just dragged on and all of the awkward, stilted banter um, made us all uncomfortable. Um, as for the draw itself, uh, obviously, Russia just got, you know, the gift of all gifts. 
warm balls, cold balls, whatever. But, uh, you know, Russia has a shot to actually win a game here. And, and um, you know, if, if uh, e- Egypt is, is overawed by its first World Cup in, since 1990, or if uh, Uruguay's elder statesmen uh, don't have what it takes after the, the long European season, then who knows what's possible. I mean, the lowest ranked team in the group uh, in the World Cup, I'm sorry, may have a shot. And, and obviously organizers want to see the host do well. And, and the other group that I'm fascinated by is is Group D with Argentina and Messi and and and, and Croatia and Modric and, and then Iceland and Nigeria, who are two teams that that are are who knows what they're capable of. But they both come with interesting stories and 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 um, you know will have something to prove and and are going up against powers that are that are flawed. This is not Germany in a group or Brazil in a group or France in a group. Sort of a team that's just going to walk through Argentina and Croatia. Um, are beatable. And, and, and so that's a, a group of death for me is when all four teams you could see getting through or you could maybe see all four teams going out. Um, and so D is the group I'm looking forward to the most. I do want to say here that I think FIFA's decision to seed all 32 teams for the first time was a really good one because there aren't, in my opinion, groups that are so top heavy compared to other ones like crazy weak groups and then crazy difficult groups. There's there's several groups where I think any of the four teams could emerge. I look at group H, Poland, Colombia, Senegal, Japan. Those are going to be some interesting games to watch if you're a soccer person. Uh, Yes. Yeah. yeah. And another, in a way, on a relative scale, another group of death, right? Because you could see any four of those teams going out or any four of those teams going through. So even though they aren't as high profile, that is a tight group. Yeah. The only group I think that, that is top heavy is B, where it's hard to imagine Iran or Morocco um, getting past Portugal and and Spain. So uh, even though the the game between Portugal and Spain will be compelling, it's hard to see either of those teams going out in the group stage. But yes, uh, in the rest of the tournament, I agree with you that the groups are pretty balanced and at least there will be at least one spot up for grabs, if not two. Uh, in every group. I actually slightly disagree with you here on this one. On on Group B, Portugal, Spain, Iran, Morocco, there's a couple things happening here. One, I would love to see a statistical study over the years at World Cups of what happens when the two best teams in the group on paper play Mm -hmm. each other in the first game. What happens to the team that loses that game? Because I remember Portugal four years ago got whacked by Germany in their first game of the group that the U.S. was in. And suddenly Portugal was in a really tight spot just because not just zero points, but bad goal difference. Portugal ends up not getting out of the group. And what we have here in this tournament are several examples of the first game is between the two power teams in the group. So Portugal and Spain. Germany and Mexico. I wonder if Mexico, if they lose that game to Germany, might be in trouble to advance. And maybe that gives some hope to the so-called lesser teams. Uh, I look at Iran and Morocco. Yes, they're obviously lesser on paper than Portugal and Spain, but Morocco didn't give up a goal in six World Cup qualifying games in the final round in Africa against some good teams. Uh, Iran had a very good record in Asia. They're by far the best team in Asia. So I look at that group and say, if Spain whacks Portugal in the first game, that would have to be a real boost in confidence, at least, for Iran and Morocco. Yeah, you're right. I mean, Morocco is in the same group as, as Ivory Coast, I think, in, in qualifying, and that's obviously a good team. I mean, I, w- I would say yes. I mean, P- Portugal Portugal really laid an egg against Germany uh, in the first game and obviously struggled to, to recover four years ago. They also had 
you know, uh, USA and Ghana in their group. And I would I would say that that USA team and that Ghana team, you know, are probably more challenging than what uh, what Portugal would face to overhaul uh, in Group B this time around. But yeah, I mean, you've talked to guys. I mean, I know this is something Landon Donovan has said many times since he's sort of taken on, put on the analyst's hat, is is his experience with with opening games and how they can go so far, you know, do, do so much to define your path to a World Cup. After that, you're you're either playing with confidence and in control, or you're chasing and desperate. Same token, 2010, Spain loses its opener, one nothing, uh, goes on to win the World Cup. So you, you know, you you'll you'll find evidence and examples where you want, but. Uh, you know, if if I if I am guilty of underestimating Morocco and Iran, then we can we can have this conversation next year, and we can all laugh at Brian, and then I can add that uh, to my Twitter bio as well. Ah, we're wrapping up here because I know you've got an interview coming up uh, this morning as we're recording this. Um, but I will say this: we put out a bunch of predictions on SI.com on Friday. Do not hold us to those. I may have different predictions by the time this tournament starts, and I've had a lot of time to look at the groups. But uh, you know. I'm I'm bummed out the U.S. isn't involved in this World Cup. I'm still excited to cover the World Cup. And we're excited to be back next week on the podcast. Thanks for joining me, Brian. Yeah. Who'd you pick? To win? You pick Spain, right? I pick Spain. Okay. I picked France. Yeah. So we'll see. I'm sure it'll be neither. All right. Thanks for joining me, man. We'll see you next week. Yep. Thanks for listening to the Planet Football Podcast. I'd like to thank Brian Strauss as well as everyone at Cadence 13 and Sports Illustrated who supports this podcast. Please, if you like the pod, tell your friends, subscribe, like, and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help the cause if you do. And check out the new 30-minute Planet Football video show hosted by me and Luis Miguel Echegaray on SITV. That's available on Amazon with a free seven-day trial now. Recent guests include Juan Carlos Osorio, Howard Webb, Gwendolyn Oxenham, and Ken Bensinger. See you next time. Do you know about the Locked On Podcast Network, the number one daily sports podcast network? Locked On has a daily podcast on every NBA and NFL team, plus a growing lineup of college and MLB teams. You get a daily bite-sized podcast giving you the latest on your team from the local experts. Lakers fans, search Locked On Lakers. Cowboys fans, search Locked On Cowboys. Just search Locked On, your favorite team, on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or tell your smart speaker to play podcast Locked On, your favorite team. Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.